This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Stories in Music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. From Peter and the Wolf and the Story of Swan Lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster, these recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Forbidden Love Feuding Fathers and Poison are proven ingredients for a successful opera, even in obscure ones. On today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, a detailed walkthrough of Verdi's rarely performed gem, Louisa Miller. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Luisa Miller began Verdi's middle period when he brought us his big three, Il Trovatore, Rigoletto, and La Traviata. But before there was a Leonora, a Gilda, or a Violetta, there was a peasant girl named Louisa. On today's episode, musical scholar Deidre Bird will take us through the opera's inspiration, plot, and musical highlights, while also drawing parallels to Verdi's more popular later works. I'm Deidre Bird, staunch opera fan and propagator of underappreciated classics. On today's Met Opera Guild podcast episode, I'd like to make the case for Verdi's Louisa Miller. Never heard of it? Well, we're going to change that. It's been over a decade since New York City's Metropolitan Opera House last staged Giuseppe Verdi's Louisa Miller. Billed this season as a rarely performed Verdi gem, poor Louisa is usually sidelined by Rigoletto, La Traviata, and Il Trovatore, the magnificent trio of Verdi's so-called middle period. In total, the Met has put on 86 productions of Louisa Miller since its 1929 premiere. Now, 86 is nothing to sniff at, but how does it stack up against the grand trio? Il Trovatore has received 647 performances, Rigoletto, 885, and La Traviata a whopping 1,011. Even 86 is starting to sound pretty small. Verdi's middle-period trio achieved its great popularity partly due to their breathtaking scores and hummable melodies, but more importantly because they focused on identifiable characters and conflicts during a generation inflamed by the 19th-century spirit of democracy. But before there was a Gilda, a Violetta, or a Leonora, there was a peasant girl named Louisa. Louisa Miller was the prototype for future mega-hits and, more importantly, the pivotal refinement of Verdi's egalitarian message for Europe. 
Verdi scholars separate the composer's works into three distinct periods or manners. His early period started with his very first opera, Oberto, in 1839, and spanned roughly ten years. There is some debate over whether Verdi's early period ends with Il Corsero or La Battaglia di Legnano. If we are categorizing Verdi's output by theme, there's no question that La Battaglia bookends the first grouping. The libretto, or the words and plot of an opera, was a mashup of Frenchman Joseph Mary's play about one of the last battles of the Napoleonic Wars and the historical defeat of the German king Frederick Barbarossa by the Italians in 1175. In keeping with the spirit of Verdi's first period, the choice was an incisive political commentary on the contemporary occupation of Italy by the Austrians. Not only did the libretto focus on a grand political and patriotic topic, the music was plainly Italian in character. The overture opens with a bold statement from the trumpets, trombones, and chimbasso, a throwback to the orchestration of the composer's most famous political allegory, Nabucco. Let's listen to the openings of both of these first period operas, 1841's Nabucco, and then eight years later, Battaglia. They sound like military marches, don't they? If these strokes aren't bold enough, give the whole thing a listen for the echo of Europe's most famous call to revolution, France's La Marseillaise, towards the end of La Battaglia's overture. The opera's early performances were a success, but that success was specifically linked to the excitement of the current political climate. It never reached the same level of popularity after Italian unification. Within the span of six months, in 1849, the nearly realized dream of an Italian republic was swept away by the restoration of the Pope with the support of the French military. Verdi was devastated and wrote, Force still rules the world, and justice, what good is it against bayonets? Although La Battaglia was undoubtedly the close of Verdi's enthusiasm for the public and the political, by no means did it signify the end of his passion for combating injustice. Louisa Miller was the beginning of Verdi's second period and his foray into the realm of the personal, the intimate, and the domestic. In addition to his new narrative direction, the changes in Verdi's compositional style are glaringly obvious. Gone are the days of the orchestra as a colorless machine, a colossal accompanist merely supporting limitless passionate tunes. The orchestra of Verdi's middle period was its own character. It represented the unconscious of the opera's cast, and it was capable of communicating feelings, ideas, and any combination of emotion. The overture to Louisa is an excellent example of the palpable emotional ambiance a musical setting can establish even before the curtains rise. It's a single-movement, symphonic-style whirlwind on one theme, 
a theme that will later communicate the full weight of Louisa's ineffable heartbreak. In the beginning of the overture I'm about to play for you, pay special attention to the main solo instrument with the theme, the clarinet. Not only does it reiterate the main theme, which represents the protagonist's emotional burden, but the same instrument returns later in the opera to signify the intensification of her despair. Many of the tactics Verdi introduced in Louisa Miller were so dramatically successful that their near duplicates can be heard in the big three middle period operas we know so well. If you're a fan of Rigoletto, La Traviata, and Il Trovatore, you will easily recognize traits of all three within their precursor, Louisa Miller. When Verdi was on the hunt for the subject of his next opera after La Battaglia del Legnano, he consulted his librettist Salvatore Camerano, Verdi wrote that he needed a drama with plenty of interest, action, and above all, feeling. Verdi shifted from the 19th century preoccupation with national identity to the focus of Louisa Miller, the everyday lives of ordinary people. He turned once again to the pioneering German dramatist Friedrich von Schiller. He had already based the operas Giovanni d'Arco and I Masnadieri on works by Schiller, and he selected Cabale und Liebe, for the source of his next. Seventeen years later, he would again use a play by Schiller as the basis for Don Carlo. Schiller's works were a natural fit for Verdi. His plays, much like Verdi's middle period operas, focus on conflicts between the middling classes and the aristocracy. The genre was called bourgeois tragedy, and it flew in the face of early 18th century German theater, a genre predominantly restricted to depictions of the nobility and their comic vassals. Schiller believed in a theater that championed righteousness as its most important characteristic and emphasized the social injustices suffered by its middle-class protagonists. 
Verdi's 19th-century adaptations went a step beyond Schiller's 18th-century portrayals of class warfare. Instead of focusing on social distinctions, the individual characters' poignant, rich, and powerful inner worlds take center stage. It was a practice he later perfected with his beloved middle-period romantic tragedies. Schiller's Cabale und Liebe, or Intrigue and Love, is a complicated five-act play with many characters, plenty of emotions, and, as its title suggests, a good deal of intrigue. The original play's runtime is about the same as Verdi's final opera, just under two hours, but, as we know, it takes much longer for a character to sing what they want to say in opera. This dealt Verdi's librettist Camerano the significant task of paring down the number of characters and the action to suit the standard format of an opera libretto. Schiller's original is a mercilessly objective portrayal of the destruction wreaked on ordinary citizens by ruling class corruption. Drawing attention to such malfeasance was a virtuous act, but Verdi wasn't interested in picking apart the causes and effects of aristocratic abuses, insomuch as exploring the tragedy in a naturalistic way. Yes, it's sad and unjust that innocent people are forced to suffer at the hands of oblivious ruling parties, but what are they thinking? What are they feeling? To paint a picture of nepotism wasn't enough for Verdi. He needed audiences to get to know these people, experience their sacrifices, and feel their anguish. With the right narrative and character adjustments, and a daring new style of musical composition, Verdi accomplished just that. Unlike many composer-librettist relationships of the time period, Verdi was passionately involved in the development of his libretti, oftentimes to the vexation of his poet. Luckily for Verdi, many of the librettists he worked with shared his vision. Towards the end of 1849, Camerano wrote to Verdi, If I were not afraid of being thought utopian, I would be tempted to say that to achieve the peak of perfection in an opera, the same mind should be responsible for both the words and the music. As the authors are in fact two, they must work together like brothers, and that if the poetry should never be the slave of the music, neither should it be its master. One of the unique characteristics in Verdi's composition process was his spirit of give and take. Verdi, as usual, wanted to remain as faithful to the original as possible, and it was Camerano's job to temper the composer's wishes with practical concerns. For example, Verdi was enamored with the character of Lady Milford in the Schiller original and wished to preserve her role in its entirety. Camerano, a native of Naples, where Louisa Miller was set to premiere, appealed against the inclusion of Lady Milford on the grounds of decency. He argued that no leading singer of the day would ever play the role of a prince's mistress for fear of ruining her reputation. As with many other suggestions, Verdi deferred to Camerano's advice and changed the character from Lady Milford, the kept woman of the Count, to the Duchess Frederica, the Count's respectable niece. Whether it was to avoid clashes with censors or to serve Verdi's own artistic purposes, Louisa Miller does not leave much of Schiller's original intact. The opera takes place in a Tyrolean village instead of a little German city, the principal characters are reduced from nine to six, and only a skeleton of the action remains. The drama centers around Louisa Miller, the daughter of a retired soldier, and the local count's son, Rodolfo, both of whom are in conflict with their fathers over their budding romance. As with Rigoletto, Traviata, and Trovatore, 
there is only enough room for one parent at a time. The absent parent is a well-established dramatic technique for ramping up the emotional bond between a parent and a child. Their love for one another is doubled and therefore more dramatically effective. The original play is a little more disturbing. Schiller's Louisa starts out with two parents until her mother disappears without explanation about halfway through. Act 1 begins with Louisa's birthday celebration and introduces the audience to her secret courtship with a young man named Carlo, who is actually the nobleman Rodolfo disguised as a huntsman. The townsfolk spill out into the streets in search of the birthday girl, singing, Awake, Louisa, Queen of Our Hearts. Along with the villagers, we also meet Louisa's father, Miller, who is rather like a combination of the stern patriarch Giorgio Germante from La Traviata and the clever servant Figaro of the Beaumarchais trilogy. As with most fathers, Miller is suspicious of his little girl's new beau and sings about his concerns. Incidentally, the disguised Rodolfo isn't the only guy in town with his eye on Louisa. Worm, the aptly named employee of the Count, is also after the peasant girl. In an attempt to foil the young lovers, he informs Miller of Carlo's real identity. Worm continues his paternal provocations in the next scene by informing Count Walter of his son's romance with a commoner. The information has the desired effect, and the Count tries to force his son to marry the Duchess Frederica, Camerano's substitute for the Lady Milford character of the original play. Rodolfo rejects the marriage, reiterates his love for Louisa, and manages to save both Louisa and her father from prison by threatening to reveal his father's terrible secret. Count Walter murdered his own cousin to gain his title. In Act Two, Miller has been jailed in spite of Rodolfo's threats. Now for the intrigue. Worm convinces Louisa that the only way to save her father is to renounce her love for Rodolfo and pledge her heart to Worm. Do you remember that clarinet solo from the overture? It makes a quick return, emphasizing Louisa's dread over the letter she is forced to pen. Sound familiar? 
the mournful wail of a clarinet was so dramatically potent in Louisa Miller that Verdi used the exact same tactic four years later in La Traviata. Just as Violetta is about to write an insincere rejection letter to Alfredo, we hear that familiar cry from the clarinet. Verdi was a master dramatist, and once he perceived the success of any given theatrical device, he added it to his arsenal for future use. Worm reports back to his boss that Louisa complied with his plan. They discuss their shared involvement in the murder of the former count, and then prepare themselves for the last leg of their scheme. Worm and the count share the stage in three separate numbers, a bold and unusual move considering both parts are written for comprimario bass a supporting role in the lowest male register. The uniqueness of this particular vocal structure takes front and center with an a cappella quartet during which Louisa announces to the Duchess Frederica that she intends to marry Worm. Come Celar Lismagne is a difficult and demanding quartet, but the results are an inventive and sensational exercise in musical artistry. Oh, <laughs> 
The final scene of Act Two contains one of Louisa Miller's most frequently performed arias, and also makes use of another compositional technique you might recognize from Verdi's Big Three. Let's take a listen to Count de Luna's aria from Act Two, Scene Two of Il Trovatore. As the Count contemplates the potential of a future with Leonora, his passionate and wistful desires float over a simple, arpeggiated clarinet accompaniment, creating a dreamlike ambiance. Now let's listen to its predecessor, Rodolfo's aria, Quando le sere al placido.
orchestrated background and harp-like arpeggi lend a heavenly quality to the music and beget a delicate atmosphere of nostalgia. Louisa Miller was a testing ground for these kinds of musical elaborations, and the ones that worked reappear again and again throughout Verdi's future repertoire. The act closes with an abortive duel between Worm and Rodolfo, and Rodolfo's eventual acceptance of the proposed marriage to Frederica. The entirety of Act Three takes place in the Miller's home. As promised, Miller was released from prison and informed of his daughter's sacrifices. He returns home to find Louisa composing a suicide pact she intends to fulfill with Rodolfo. They launch into a protracted duet during which Miller convinces his daughter to tear up the letter. They rejoice in her decision and proceed to plan a new future together in a place unknown. The entire sequence is dramatically reminiscent of the duet between Rigoletto and his daughter Gilda, both fathers essentially shame their offspring into living because they cannot live without them. Miller heads off to bed, and Louisa begins to pray near the window. While she is praying, Rodolfo slips into the room, directs a servant to alert his father the Count as to his whereabouts, and then surreptitiously pours the contents of a vial from his pocket into a pitcher of liquid on the table. Displaying the letter, Rodolfo confronts Louisa. When she is unable to deny that she was the author, Rodolfo demands a drink from the pitcher. He comments on its bitterness, and she, too, takes a sip. In the original play, Rodolfo at least waits until Louisa openly admits she wrote the letter before poisoning the drink. This little change was probably made in order not to ruffle the censors. Suicide was seen as objectionable, and this alteration takes the focus off the physical act of poisoning. The orchestra really comes into its own in the last scene, hinting at what Louisa can't admit and flooding the room with the effects of the draft. Verdi punctuates Rodolfo's admission with sinister, falling woodwind intervals before cutting off entirely. You said death? Louisa asks in the silence. Free of her bond, she musically thrashes Rodolfo with the truth while he curses himself and the orchestra whips into a frenzy. Oh, <laughs> 
Awakened by the noise, dashes into the room and they all begin the trio finale. Louisa enters into a dreamlike state, rejoices in her impending reunion with Rodolfo, and then, just as in Rigoletto, dies in her father's arms. Worm enters with the Count and the villagers, and Rodolfo summons the energy to kill Worm before falling dead at Louisa's side.
before Verdi, operas were expected to go out with a bang. A composer was basically required to find a way to get the entire cast back up on stage for the ending, whether or not it actually made narrative sense. As we've seen, Verdi was slowly doing away with convention, and Louisa's finale is an excellent example of his progress. His previous opera conveniently finished with a roaring chorus and bells clamoring away as its hero dies. At the end of Louisa Miller, the title character is already dead, and, just as in the original play by Schiller, a small crowd of villagers has gathered over the commotion. The impressive final solo belongs to Rodolfo, and his father briefly cries out, My son, and the chorus emits a solitary, somber, ah. It is nearly identical to the ending of La Traviata, where Violetta expires on a high note, the doctor pronounces her dead, and the chorus sings a funereal, O mio dolor, what unbearable grief. Instead of popularizing Verdi's earlier work, the overwhelming success of Verdi's Big Three pushed Louisa Miller to the wayside for over a century. Some critics even went so far as to label Louisa nothing more than a partial sketch for La Traviata. Yes, it's true that many of the dramatic and musical ideas Verdi first introduced appeared in a comparatively adolescent stage, but those ideas deserve credit for the germination of their final forms. Why, in fact, the nascent musical devices present in Louisa Miller permit for an even greater proximity to Verdi himself. The recognition of his growth pattern from original notion to fully developed operatic device can only deepen our understanding of what we already know and enjoy. My prescription is that every fan of Verdi's middle period should experience Louisa Miller, not only because it's a very good opera in its own right, but because it enriches our appreciation of the Verdi operas we already know and love. That was Deidre Bird talking about Verdi's Louisa Miller. It's on stage at the Met through April 21st, starring Sonia Yoncheva in the title role, Piotr Bachawa as Rodolfo, her lover, and Placido Domingo as her father, Miller. To keep up to date on all upcoming lectures and various opera learning events at the Metropolitan Opera Guild, subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter at metguild.org. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.